the word that we have just heard sung beautifully is the word Noel. We hear it each and every year at services like the one that we're in together in ways that comfort us and inspire us. But my guess is a good many of us have no idea what it actually means. Uh, you may know that uh, the word is actually the modern French word for Christmas, but underneath that is the ancient Latin word natus, which means birth. So then Noel means something close to the birth. And there is just something profoundly beautiful to me thinking of Christmas so simply. This night is an annual celebration of the birth. Well, birth is certainly on the minds of the Lynch family this Christmas. My daughter-in-law and daughter are expecting children in 2024, bringing us grandchild number three and four, respectively. Uh, the birth of each grandchild is a cause of profound joy for Pops and Mimi Lynch, so we can't wait to see three and four and to hold them and to kiss them and to tell them that Mimi may sometimes say no, but Pops will always say yes. <laughs> but as much joy as those births will bring us in the coming months, the birth we celebrate tonight is different. It is the birth. It is the birth that slices history in half. For those of us who are here tonight, whose hope is anchored to that birth, it is the miracle of God stepping into history to accomplish our salvation. But for those on the other side of Bethlehem, for those living in the bleak years and centuries and millennia before Christ, the birth represented something maybe more primal, it represented the longing to no longer be afraid. You see, fear dominates the pages of the Old Testament focused on the coming of the Messiah, especially in what is arguably the most famous Old Testament messianic passage of them all, one which we heard referenced in the beautiful choir piece preceding this message, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We, of course, almost know it by heart. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now you are to be excused if you hear those words and think fear. I mean, what fear is in those words? Those words are of joy and comfort and victory. And indeed, they absolutely are. But in order to feel the joy and comfort and victory of those verses, we have to go all the way back to Isaiah 7 and experience the fear that pours from those verses. So let's take just a moment to zoom out from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and then we'll zoom back in. I've often thought 
that the words, for unto us a child is born, and Isaiah 9 might have been completed with, woe to us, a foe is given, had they been uttered in Isaiah 7. The people were in a bind, again. Nations to their north had united to attack them and to take the land of Judah and Jerusalem as their own, again. And things were being made worse because they had a terrible and ungodly king, again. And as a result, the prevailing spirit of the day was fear. Isaiah 7 is really pretty descriptive of just how frightened they were. It says that the king's heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. So God sends them, the prophet Isaiah, with a promise of deliverance, though it's not a promise that the king at the time would have appreciated because, you see, God promises that he would deliver them by providing them a new king. But before he does that, things still look bleak. And as with any time of uncertainty, the people of Judah begin to whisper conspiratorial rumors in one another's ears. Was the king about to be overthrown? Would there be an internal coup in the palace by uh, sympathizers of Judah's enemies who would just hand the land over without a fight? And as with any time of uncertainty, these unfound speculative conspiratorial rumors incited fear and not confidence. In fact, Isaiah himself wasn't immune to it. As chapter 7 gives way to chapter 8, we find that the fear of the people around him was starting to seep into Isaiah's own heart. So God says to him, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And listen, do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. And as chapter 8 gives way to chapter 9, he reminds him again of why a king is coming, which brings us back to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. There are, of course, four descriptions given in Isaiah 9 of this coming king. He's a counselor, he's God, he's father, he's prince. And four qualities provided for each description, wonderful, mighty, eternal, and peace. The first two indicate wisdom. In Scripture, use of the word wonderful indicates supernatural abilities, and counselor refers to someone who plans or who advises. So taken together, they tell us that this king who is coming, would, who would bring peace, is, is someone who was supernaturally gifted to rule wisely. But the most important descriptions of this new king relate to his worthiness. As described by Isaiah, it overwhelms us. He is the mighty God with the strength to maintain peace. He is the eternal Father with the longevity and compassion to keep the peace. He, in fact, is the Prince of Peace. So the promise of God through Isaiah is that the nation who followed unworthy kings is being sent one who is supremely worthy. He would be the one true king. And the message of God through Isaiah is those who followed this king would no longer need to fear. His birth is the birth. And it is the one that we celebrate here tonight. And yet... We are a shockingly fearful people, which seems 
terribly out of place, gathered here in our Christmas finery while we are setting in the warm glow of holiday lights and singing about the Prince of Peace. Does that not strike anyone as odd? But here's the thought. The juxtaposition of fear with Christmas can actually serve as the shock therapy we need to show us that something is amiss if we'll just stop and pay attention to it for just a second. In fact, if you think about it, that's the entire premise behind Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It is, of course, the story of Scrooge and the journey that led him to discover that his understanding of reality was fundamentally flawed. Scrooge believed that a life currying to his own self-interest was the most responsible way to live, modeling his life after his mentor, his business partner, the late Jacob Marley. But then Marley returns from the grave and he speaks of his life that was admired by Scrooge as actually having forged a curse with chains being created link by link, yard by yard, living the kind of life that Scrooge admired. And even though he thought this was a responsible way to live, Marley comes back to tell Scrooge that he is actually binding himself in a curse from which he could never escape. That's why Marley was coming to warn his friend. And, of course, we know what happens next. The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come conspire to show Cruz for what he really was. And I submit to you it was this. He was a fearful man. The ghost of Christmas past reminds him he had not always been fearful, but also reminds him how that transformation to a fear-based person took place. Scrooge was allowed to see the wounds of living had built up in him little by little until he pulled back from the world and even those he loved and depended on no one but himself and on nothing but his wealth, charting the course for the rest of his life. But the key moment is when the ghost forces Scrooge to relive a fateful conversation with the love of his life, Belle, when she breaks things off with them with these words. Here they are, you fear the world too much. You fear the world too much. All your other hopes, she says, have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. In other words, Scrooge became consumed by the fear of what might happen to him and became controlled by it, all the while believing that he was the one who was in control. Essentially, fear drove Scrooge to become his own king and kingdom. But assuming the throne put him under fear's control until it was too late. There are some gathered here with us this Christmas Eve gripped by a Christmas carol kind of fear, which is really just an Isaiah 7 and 8 kind of fear, fearing the world too much. Just as the ancient people of Israel worked themselves up into a frenzy over what might happen to them, becoming controlled by that frenzy, people here tonight have done the same thing. In fact, I can uh, induce that fear, trigger it in you with just a few simple words. Folks, my age and up, here they are, Gaza, immigration, presidential election, 
Folks my age and down, I can trigger them in you with just a few simple words. Here they are, inflation, layoffs, interest rates. I can induce that fear in parents here this evening with a few simple words. Here they are, failure, identity, cyberbullying. All our fears of what the world might do to us. Fears of things that frankly are largely beyond our control. And to those fearful, Isaiah says, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. For you have a king who is worthy and sufficient. His birth is the birth that will change everything. So why hasn't the birth changed everything for us? Why are we so controlled by our fear and dread? Well, let me submit to you that it's because we don't come to the manger looking for a king. For sure we come looking for peace, but we don't come looking for a king. This is reflected in a Christmas song that I'm sure is loved by many in this room. The song, Do You Hear What I Hear? Almost everyone here can recite the words. It was written in October of 1962. Any historians here have any idea what was going on in October of 1962? The Cuban Missile Crisis. The world has never been closer to the abyss of nuclear annihilation than those two weeks in the fall of 62. And this song was written in the dead middle of it. A fear that, that, the, that the world was, was going to collapse on them caused a husband and wife team to write the song. The night wind whispers to the little lamb to see the star. And the lamb tells the shepherd boy to listen for the song. And the shepherd boy asks uh, the king if he knows a child has been born. And the king says to people everywhere, pray for peace brought by a child who would bring goodness and light. It's beautiful. I mean, I really like it, Bing Crosby's version especially, because I'm an old man. It also says absolutely nothing of any consequence whatsoever and provided no comfort whatsoever. The couple who wrote it couldn't perform it for years because every time they did, this song written as a prayer for peace brought these old fears of nuclear war back to the surface and incapacitated them, literally. Literally, they said, our little song broke us up. They couldn't sing their prayer for peace because they were overwhelmed by the terror that prompted the lyrics in the first place. It was like a pacifier that wouldn't soothe. And that's because it's a song about Jesus and Christmas, but with no gospel and no king. It's an attempt to relieve fear with sentiment, but sentiment isn't the solution that Christmas offers. The solution that Christmas offers is a king. And a failure to understand that is why the peace boost of Christmas is relatively short-lived each and every year for so many of us. And why 
2024 will very quickly become the year of being controlled by fear of election outcomes and the cost of living and parenting failures and why we'll get back together next December the 24th and say, tell me about that baby again. Why we'll come back next year singing Silent Night while gripping our lighted candles tightly, staring at the flame, hoping that this year, maybe this year, we will finally find some peace. So my purpose here tonight has not been to comfort you with sentiment. It has not been to tell you a warm little story about a baby. It has been to tell you that what you're missing in life is a king. And his birth is the birth. It is the one that we are here to celebrate tonight. And so what we need to do is not come to God looking for help with our problems. We need to come to God saying, in this manger is the king that I yield my life to. And so tonight as we light our candles, we will be testifying to the world that it's not about sentiment, it's about our King.